Hi everybody, I'm Katie. And I'm Rhiannon. And welcome to Haunting Cases. It's still June 10th, by the way. This is a double recording. We took a momentary break. And prior to fil- like doing the last episode, I had been eating like chocolate. And for some reason, this chocolate is very spicy. And I don't know why. Well, I wouldn't say very spicy. Like I eat spicy food all the time, but it's definitely like got like an under bite of like jalapeno to it. And I'm like, why is it spicy? Because it's not something that I would I would expect out of chocolate. I'm gonna have to like message my dad and be like, "Why is your chocolate spicy, sir? <laughs> Please answer uh, me." Sir, there's something wrong with your chocolate. There's something wrong with your chocolate. Why is it spicy? <laughs> but I also can't decide if I like it or not. Because it's interesting enough that I'm like, oh, I could eat this for a little bit. But it's also kind of revolting enough that I'm like, get it out of my mouth. But then I just pop another piece right in afterwards. I'm like, okay. Yeah, I was going to say, you keep eating more, so it can't be that bad. No, I was like, grab another one. I like me some spicy chocolate, though. I don't think I've had jalapeno chocolate. That would probably be a little weird. I've had, like, the, the chili pepper chocolate, and that's pretty good. Like, that's what you would expect it to taste like, but it literally just tastes like jalapeno. Yeah, I don't know how I'd feel about that. I don't know. Yeah, just some jalapeno mm. in there. <laughs> yeah, because jalapenos, I like the heat. I'm not a big fan of the taste. Like, a little bit mm-hmm. of it's okay, but if all I'm tasting is jalapeno, then it's kind of a no for me. So the jalapeno chocolate might not do it for me. That's me with uh, green peas. My mom made fucking peas the other night. And I shoveled those bitches away as fast as I could because I know that they're good for me. I don't necessarily like dislike peas, but they're not my favorite. Like, if I had the option to have any other green vegetable on my plate, it, it could literally be anything except peas. I will eat it. I'm not like horribly opposed to it, but there was a pile of peas and I started shoveling those down and she came back. She's like, oh, they couldn't have been that bad. I'm like, no, I was gagging by the end. She's like, I could have just given them to the dogs. I'm like, no, because I know that they're good for me. And she's like, <laughs> but I missed out on your face. I'm like, yeah, I was kind of sitting over there doing the <laughs> <laughs> like, well, because I was going. I don't know what it is about them. Like if they're like mixed together with other food, like pot pies and such, not a problem. By themselves, I'm like, they gag me. I don't know why. Yeah, I know I know a good amount of people that don't like peas. I actually really like peas. They're one of my favorite green vegetables. But yeah, I do know some people that don't like peas. No, no peas no. on my plate. No. Don't pee on my plate. <laughs> uh, oh, God. <laughs> I guess we should probably get this show on the road. <laughs> Our tired brains are bringing it down already. It's fine. It's fine. This is this is the more relaxed side of our podcast. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, that's true. That's true. We are in part two of the 
Velisca X murder murder house. So it's gonna be a little bit heavy. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> All right, here come the trigger warnings. Prepare yourselves. <laughs> While we understand that some individuals listen for the entertainment aspect of true crime, it's important to remember that these are real people with families and friends who may still be suffering from their loss. These stories are not meant to open old wounds or cause further emotional damage to those involved. We remind you to please be respectful, do not dox, or contact those involved with cases. While paranormal occurrences and urban legends may be sources of tourism, please be considerate if you visit one of these locations. Do not engage in trespassing and be sure to ask for permission if you plan on recording. Be aware of your surroundings and travel safely. The cases discussed in this podcast may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. In this episode, we will be discussing cases involving more than one of the following. Children, sexual assault, domestic violence, and suicide. As always, listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know has a child who has been victimized, please call the proper authorities and look at missingkids.org or call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's hotline at 800-843-5600. Seven, eight, for more helpful resources. If you or someone you know has been a victim of sexual assault, please reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673. If you or someone you know has been a victim of domestic violence, please reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-72. And if you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. Now, back to the show. Let's see. Okay, now we're recording again so we can do this for real <laughs> <laughs> all right now that i've been rudely interrupted by my internet bandwidth um, we'll do a brief overview of the moore's case again so what happened was that if you haven't listened to part one please go listen to part one because i went into as much detail as i could for like the hour of time that i had the moore's family had been living in Villisca. And ultimately, like, they had lived there for a while. They went to a event at their local Presbyterian church, and it was, like, a Children's Day event. From there, the family took two girls as well from the Presbyterian church event because they were afraid to walk home in the dark, the Stillinger sisters. They were friends of the Moore family, and they did have permission to take them. Please don't think that this is a kidnapping. Um... (laughs) They all went home, they went to bed, they had milk and cookies before they went to sleep, 
and at some time in the night, an individual retrieved an axe from the property and went inside the home and proceeded to murder all eight individuals inside the home. The person responsible has never been caught and the case still remains cold to this day. It was a messy synopsis, but go listen to part one. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, if you're here and you haven't listened to part one, go listen to part one. Because I will not be discussing too much of the actual murders today, seeing as we discussed the murders last week. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, if you if you want backstory, listen to part one. It's my territory. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we dive into the paranormal, I had a couple side notes to address at the beginning. One was uh, just something that jumped out at me when I was researching this case is supposedly this made national news where it was a big enough story that it overcame the story of the Titanic about two months after it had sunk. Sank? Sunk? Sunk is right, I think. Sunk is right. (laughs) I was like, is that right? (laughs) I got to check. (laughs) Uh, So this was a, a very big story, very shocking uh, for its time, it would, I'm sure it would still be shocking even if it happened today, but uh, it was a, a very big story that made national news. The other general note I wanted to cover regarding the murder specifically was uh, something we did discuss a little bit in the last episode, was that the murderer covered the mirrors in the household and it's been discussed whether that's due to guilt that the murderer felt guilty after the fact of committing the crime and did not want to look at their reflection in the mirror or was it more of a religious or spiritual belief as these beliefs were very common in the Victorian era and even in other time periods and other cultures There's a lot of different beliefs about mirrors, especially concerning the afterlife or when people pass away, uh, where many different cultures and religions and beliefs uh, teach that you should cover the mirror if you have somebody pass away in the household, whether that is so that that person's soul can pass on into the afterlife safely or to prevent the living from being cursed. Uh, But in any case, I wanted to just bring that up right at the front, and Katie did point out uh, that the the preacher, Kelly, is religious, so if he was indeed the murderer, totally possible that it was a religious belief as to why the mirrors were covered up, but I guess we'll never know since it's a cold case. <laughs> very true, very true. Unfortunately, that is probably the harder parts that come with doing older cold cases is just that the evidence is obviously gone at this point and there's not much that you can gain at this point either. So yeah, not to mention you had over a hundred people trampling through that crime scene, taking God knows what one person took a piece of Joe's skull. So yeah, still can't like, handle that. I don't understand why. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't get it. I don't know why. Bull. <laughs> Bull. 
Well, hopefully there'll be a little less of that today. Hopefully. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. So in this part two today, I will be covering more of the house and any potential hauntings that have resulted from the crimes that occurred in the house um, and discussing less of the murders themselves. Uh, but let's dig into it here. So as I like to do, I'll start with uh, the very beginning. I didn't dig up a whole lot about the land specifically, uh, besides uh, Katie's tidbit that she already spoke of in the last episode about how it was originally thought the town was named of after being a pleasant place, and it turns out it was named after a word for evil spirits. So that may be some foreshadowing for what is to come in this episode. <laughs> Because originally I heard it from Morbid, and then I was like, oh, well, I'll go check it out and make sure that, like, you know, fact-checking. Not to say that Morbid doesn't do that, but just fact-checking and making sure. And I was like, oh, oh, they're right. Oh, that's not good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's some bad foreshadowing. Uh, bad juju. <laughs> Yeah, but besides that, I don't have too much to say about the land the house was built on. But the house itself was built in 1868 by George Loomis, and it came into Josiah B. Moore's possession in 1903. Now, the building itself is a classic wooden farmhouse with a pitched roof and one staircase inside. And the rooms that it contains include a parlor, which likely doubled as a dining room, a guest room downstairs, which was also likely multi-purpose and used for sewing and other kinds of housework, bedrooms upstairs for both the children and the parents, and then a closet door uh, with another door inside leading to the attic. Now, following the murders that we discussed in the last episode, the household passed through about seven owners over a period of 90 years, and over that time, no one ever really seemed to stay in the house for that long. I apologize if I mispronounce this name. I found multiple pronunciations, so I'm going to try to do my best. But uh, the Giesman family, uh, the father, John... Uh, actually moved into the barn after spending just one night in the house and refused to sleep in the house after the first night. The Friggins, which would be his granddaughter and then her husband, lived in the house years later. And similarly, her husband moved out after spending just a few nights in the house and again refused to spend any more nights in the house. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's just something going on against men here. Cause, to be uh, fair, like, Joe did not meet a pleasant end, so. No, no, he did not. He was the man <laughs> of the house, so. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it was rented out, actually, for a period of time, uh, I would imagine, because probably whoever bought the house did not want to live in it after experiencing that and didn't want to lose their investment. And so one uh, family who rented it was Homer and Bonnie Rittner. 
they had a very specific experience in which Bonnie woke up one night and saw a man holding an axe over their bed. Woo! Yeah. Woo! He came back! <laughs> <laughs> I know. Oh, no. Yeah, I was just like, oh, oh no way. I would not be staying in that house after that. Um, and then Homer was hearing footsteps on the stairs, and shortly after both of those occurrences, they left the house. Mm. <laughs> mm. I don't know how I feel about that. I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. <laughs> uh, Linda Cloud and Patty Williamson were sisters who lived in the house as children. They described their experience as little girls, where at night they would hear other little girls crying and voices speaking. And then on one particular occasion, they remember very clearly that their father was sharpening one of his knives, and suddenly it was as if something grabbed his wrist and forced him to stab himself in the chest with the knife. <laughs> Yeah, I was pretty horrified when I learned about that. Kane just looks pretty horrified over here, too. Oh. Uh. Uh. Yeah, so not good things. Not good things no. going on in the history of the house. No. Uh. Uh, as an adult, Linda feels that she is pulled back to the house, but she doesn't know if it's a good or evil sort of spirit that's pulling her back. While her sister is extremely visibly terrified to enter the house. Now, after about 90 years, uh, there's a real estate agent that's trying to find somebody to buy this house. Because by now, of course, there's multiple rumors circulating. You already, of course, have the story of the murders. And now you have people coming and going and not liking the house or having good experiences in the house so it sounds like they were having a hard time finding a buyer well they came across somebody in town named darwin lynn he owned the local history museum and was uh basically very passionate about history seems like the kind of guy who uh is a big preservationist and so they thought maybe he'd be interested in purchasing the house and he lowballed an estimate to save it from destruction because they basically told him if nobody buys it, it's just going to get destroyed and replaced with something else. Despite his wife, Martha, warning otherwise. So we have another situation here where a wife is maybe not included in the planning process. Here. She's like, I, I don't like the look of that place, honey. Let's not move there. He's like, okay, sweetie. Okay, don't, don't worry about it. I, I trust you. Calls on the other line. Book it. Yeah. That's my place now. I'll give you this much for it. Okay. Okay. Glad we got a deal. Honey, we're moving. Exactly. Actually, I think there was some remorse because apparently he didn't tell his wife for two whole months after he found out that his bid actually won them the house. <laughs> He's probably like, oh no. How oh, are we going to explain this? It was a joke. I was kidding. <laughs> I didn't actually think I'd get it. <laughs> uh, so in any case, the Lynns purchased the house in 1994. And at that point, they decided to restore it to its original condition in 1912 when the murders happened. 
So in order to do so, they removed the vinyl siding from the house, repainted the original wood, had to pull out all electricity and plumbing from the household, uh, exposed the front and back porches, which had been covered up over time, and added an outhouse and chicken coop to the backyard. They tried to use testimony to place furniture where it would have been at the time of the murder to make it as historically accurate as possible. And the whole purpose of this restoration was with the goal of preserving the history of the site and honoring the family. They didn't originally have plans to show it off as a paranormal site. They solely were interested in its history when they first purchased the property and restored it. And uh, just a quick mention here, the house is listed on the National Registry of Historic Buildings, thanks to their efforts. Okay. Now, before we dig into all the paranormal stuff, I thought I'd just throw this out here. If anybody is interested in taking a tour of the building, it is available to tour. They do daytime tours Tuesday through Sunday in the afternoons from 1 to 4 p.m. at about $10 per person. Or, if you'd like to spend the night after hearing this episode... We can spend the night! <laughs> Yo. <laughs> Add it to the list, Katie! <laughs> Shit. Yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> Shit, I don't know if I want to. This place is fucking weird. <laughs> uh, we'll see, we'll see. Um, if you want to stay overnight... It's $428 for a group of one to six people and then for $75 for each additional person. And there's more details on their website, which I have listed in my references. So please be sure to check out their website for more details if you are interested in a tour. Now let's go into all the interesting things going on in the house so you can decide if you really are interested in spending the night. <laughs> Make an educated decision. <laughs> educated decision. I gotta have some experiences in this field. I mean, I gotta be horrified at some point. As long as there's no mirrors staring at each other, I think we're good. <laughs> yeah, let's not go to the Croke Patterson with the mirrors lined up next yeah, to each other. Yeah, no, thank you. No, no. <laughs> Uh, so we'll, since we were just talking about tours, we'll start with what's been going on with some of the tours. So since we're discussing tours, I'll start with the occurrences that have been going on specifically on, on the tours. So one of the tour guides noticed a pattern during these tours where kids are, were specifically being attracted to the room where the Stillinger girls had been killed in. Now these... These kids uh, would have two specific experiences in this room, usually. Either they'd go in there and they'd be hanging out in the room and they'd start getting really frustrated and yell, stop pushing me. Or the other kids would have the experience where they'd be playing peekaboo with something under the covers of the bed and under the bed when there was nothing there. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about it. It's kind of sweet, but at the same time, I'm like... Yeah, yeah, that was kind of my opinion. It was like, mm, kind, kind of sweet, kind of creepy. I guess it depends on what you're playing peekaboo with. <laughs> I, I presume it's the Stillinger sisters. Like, I presume they're in that room. And of course, like, sibling rivalry. Like, it's the stop touching me, don't touch me type of attitude. Oh, yeah, for so sure. So I'm like, okay, I'm like, I get that. Yeah, I know, I 
I can see that. I can see that. I can see that. I can see being <laughs> the sister with him being completely harmless, but at the same time, very creepy. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how I'd feel about that if I was a parent and my kid was uh, playing peekaboo with some <laughs> invisible <laughs> spirit. Run. I feel like when in doubt, sage it out. You're, you're getting <laughs> cleansed before you get in my vehicle, but we're going home. Speaking of which, uh, Martha, the owner of the house, she has stated that there is some energy in the house that she would consider, she basically described it as being not peaceful, that not everything in the house is a peaceful energy. So we'll go a little bit more into that. Okay. I would imagine not after everything that occurred. Right? (laughs) Definitely. I'll start with the more general paranormal occurrences before going into more specifics. There's been orbs that have been both photographed as well as seen in the house. Children's voices and giggles can be heard when there's no children about. Girls crying can be heard often in the downstairs bedroom where the Stillinger girls were murdered. Screams can sometimes be heard. Footsteps. Apparitions and shadows. Again, seen in person as well as detected on camera. Growling, and especially down in the cellar, apparently there is uh, rumors about shadows and growling specifically in the cellar. I hate creepy basements. (laughs) I don't like them either. No, no. It's okay, we stay, we just stay up top, okay? We don't go into the basement. No, we don't need to go in the basement. (laughs) We don't need to go in the basement. There's nothing down for us there anyway. Like, mind your own business, stay upstairs. Falling lamps, moving ladders, chairs rocking, and objects being moved, especially children's toys. A fog that moves between rooms when the train passes through town at about the time of the murders, which I'm not sure how frequently the train passes through. It's A, a lot of articles say it comes through regularly. One specific article mentioned about 2 a.m. the train comes through. Uh, But it is possible it could be coming through at other times in that window when the murders may have happened. And it, um, oh yeah, this is an important thing I wanted to point out, is that when I was reading up on it, there's some people that actually speculate the murderer may have used the sound of the train to cover up the sounds of what they were doing. And so that may be potentially why there could be some sort of spiritual activity specifically connected to the train. Mm Mm-hmm. Some visitors to the house experience very strong negative emotions or behave strangely. And some visitors have also been scratched or grabbed by spirits. Now, this incident is actually similar to an incident I already mentioned, which is a little frightening. On November... November. I don't know when the hell November is. <laughs> it's right between September and November. <laughs> Wait, that's October. <laughs> <laughs> now it's called November. <laughs> it's November now. <laughs> we celebrate Novemberween at the end of the month. <laughs> On November 7th, 2014, a paranormal investigator was rushed to the hospital for a self-inflicted stab wound to the chest. 
So again, we have another incident where somebody has stabbed themselves in the chest, and based on uh, how the story is told, it was not intentional at all. I did omit the name here out of respect for him and his family. Uh, however, the incident itself occurred when the individual was alone in the Northwestern bedroom while the rest of the team was outside. He actually ended up calling for help over the radio. And the incident occurred at about 12.45 a.m., which, again, is in the speculated range of when the murders may have occurred. He did recover from his injuries, thankfully. That's good. Yes. <laughs> As I'm sitting over here, I'm like, maybe they don't like ghost hunters. Maybe, maybe that's, that'll be a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe they just, I don't know, maybe maybe it's a couple things. They don't like ghost hunters, they don't seem to like men. I don't know, I don't know. I can understand the man premise, especially if, like, you're killed by a towering one wielding an axe. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Ugh. In any case, uh, moving on into the different paranormal investigations that have occurred inside the household now. So the first official paranormal investigation occurred in 1990. Nowadays, investigators often bring toys as gifts for the children to play with. And I'll go through a few different investigators now to cover what different teams and individuals have experienced. So Johnny Hauser is a local paranormal investigator, and he does believe that there's a dark side to the haunting in this building, and specifically stated that he believes the dark haunting is more of an intelligent kind of haunting, while as the lighter-hearted, more positive haunting is residual, uh, which I've gone over those terms before, so just a quick a definition for anybody who hasn't listened to our previous episodes, an intelligent haunting is one that is interacting, it can behave on its own, basically, and thus can generally be more dangerous, potentially, whereas a residual haunting is just, like, an imprint of time that's just repeating over and over and over, but will not react to anything, it won't change, it just keeps doing the same thing over and over. Now... Chris Deadman and Roland Sains uh, and the rest of the team with Midway Paranormal Society had also investigated the... Oh, your cat gave me a heart attack. <laughs> I was trying to like, keep a straight face, busting my heart. Oh, God. Dude, she hit my back <sighs> and she came up. I was like, what the hell? Oh, my God. I just saw like... It looked almost like a figure standing up behind you because the, she, the way she moved, I just saw her head pop up and then her shoulders. So it looked like a human almost like popping up behind you, but like dark and shadowy. It freaked me the fuck out. Oh, my heart. I told you there's some ghosts in this house. I was like, damn, Kate, you got a serious problem there. It's just the cat. It's just the cat. We're good. Thankfully, it's just the cat. <laughs> All right. Like, I was trying to keep quiet because she hit me just right across the back. I'm like, that fucking hurt. <laughs> I was trying to. Her claws haven't been trimmed. 
I was trying to finish my sentence, but I just couldn't. I was like, oh my god. I can't take it. Not when we're talking about axe murders. You're like, I'm about to see the live action for it, but Katie just told me. Oh, God. Uh, all right, I'll try that again. <laughs> So, Chris Deadman, Roland Sains, and the rest of the team with Midway Paranormal Society have investigated the house at least twice, and they described feeling what they described specifically as more of an evil kind of presence in the house and believed that it could be potentially a dangerous haunting. They did a spirit box session in the parlor where they actually were asking who was there with them and had a male voice answer, Reverend Kelly. (gasps) Bitch, why you there? (laughs) Why you there? I knew you'd get a reaction out of that. (laughs) What you doing? What you doing, bitch? You're not supposed to be there. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking knew it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. Just wait till you hear this. Later, um, on another occasion, this one didn't specify the room, so I'm not sure if this was also in the parlor or elsewhere, but one of their team members demanded the spirit again to identify itself in the name of Christ this time, and the spirit box responded, Legion. Which, if you don't know what Legion means, that generally is referring to a multitude of people it's you. It was historically a term describing thousands of people, uh, basically going to war like in an army kind of setting. But it can also be used just to describe a vast number of people. So that was a little creepy, and uh, yeah, I don't like that. Don't like that at all. Don't like it one bit. And uh, as. One of the investigators was walking outside. He actually had the breath completely knocked out of him by an unseen force. And it took him a moment to recover his breath. And so when the other teammates came out to make sure he was okay, they, um, I'm not sure if he, if he asked for this or if they got this idea, but basically they wanted to take a look at his back and they ended up finding three claw marks on his back that formed the letter L. Capital L. Just like for Legion. (laughs) No thank you. Well typically like three claw marks in like the Christian uh like I don't know mythology. I hate to call it mythology. Um in the Christian religion. Yeah that's the word religion. In the Christian religion, three claw marks usually symbolizes, like, any type of, like, shade being thrown or, like, disrespect to the Holy Trinity. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. I have heard of that before, that because it's using the number three, that's disrespecting the Holy Trinity. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. So it definitely could be something along those lines as well, for sure, which... Uh, something's pretty dark to me that does not sound like uh, the kind of spirit you want to be hanging around Mm. Uh, trying to go in order of time here I just realized I forgot to look up the date for one of these but hopefully these are in order Um, (laughs) next we have (laughs) 
uh, the Ghost Adventures actually went and investigated the Velisca X murder house. And oh, Zach Bagel Bites. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, Zach Bagel Bites. Uh, the episode was published in 2010. So I'm not, I'm sure it was filmed before that, either early 2010 or probably in 2009. But in any case, they did get some pretty good evidence this time around. A lot of time I'm really skeptical about Zach Bagel Bites. So... Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> yeah, so I definitely take this with a grain of salt. Uh, but this episode was more impressive than a lot of the other episodes I've watched by them. Uh, so it, it did make me raise my eyebrow a little bit more. But like I said, still take it with a grain of salt because I, I definitely feel like that's necessary. But in any case, uh, they caught on video footsteps and then a door slamming shut. They also had a motion-activated camera that was triggered that, uh, when it turned on, it detected a mist moving by it, which they didn't necessarily describe it this way, but the way I perceived it is it did appear to be in the form of a figure walking by, so I found that particularly interesting. Uh, they did a spirit box session in which they believe they connected with Lena Stillinger. And they also uh, specifically asked for the name of the murderer, and a spirit responded, Andy. Now, Andy is not one of the suspects that Katie chose to cover, because I believe we briefly mentioned it in the last episode, that basically there was evidence uh, disproving that it could have been Andy, um, however, I will briefly go over the suspect since it came up in the spirit box. Andy Sawyer was known to be, uh, I, I believe he was described as somebody just kind of passing through, but he was known to have some mental health issues going on and slept with his axe at night. And apparently after witnessing, or I should say after the, the day of the murder, or the night of the murder, after it was discovered, he was witnessed muttering to himself and started making a chopping motion in the air with his hands, saying, I will cut your damn heads off. So, uh, that definitely threw some shade on him, made him look a little suspicious, so he was definitely a suspect for the murder. However, when it was further investigated, they believed that they found evidence that it was not Andy who committed the crime. Uh, but I did want to bring him up since that he came up in the spear box. Interesting. Thank you for covering that. I'm like, when I looked at Andy, there wasn't much available regarding like his involvement and like what was going on. But I presume that it might've been in a different article like you had found. And I was trying yeah. to avoid the paranormal stuff. <laughs> yeah. It specifically came up in one of the paranormal articles. Yeah. Yeah. Yup. Um, they also got a few different EVPs, which I'll just go over a few of the ones that I found particularly interesting. They captured a girl asking, wanna play? And then this one kind of creeped me out next. It is a, also a children whispering, but it specifically says, Herman's gonna get you, right before the sound of toys moving across the floor. <laughs> That just kind of creeps me out. I'm sure it's a kid, like, that's just having a good old time. But that just creeps me out. <laughs> like, my thought is that if it's an intelligent haunt, and if, unfortunately, these children know that they have passed on, 
but they're all still together. Like, that would be something I would like. I would be my brother's wingman for that. I'd be like, he's gonna get ya. <laughs> I'd be like, do it, do it now. Watch him scream. <laughs> all right. <laughs> totally possible. <laughs> Yeah, and it definitely sounded like a child whispering, so I would hope that's a children's spirit and not some dark spirit trying to pose as a child. But Herman was the name of one of the the Moore's children. Mm-hmm. So, totally possible. <laughs> now we get into the really creepy stuff that Zach Bagelbites uh, detected <laughs> in their, his and his team's investigation. Specifically EVPs. So they detected an EVP of a man who's... They pointed out, and it really is true if you listen to it, the man sounds breathless, like he's out of breath as if he's been exerting himself. And he says very slowly, I killed six kids. And so, yeah, I didn't like it one bit. I wonder if it's the guy coming to terms with what he did. Like, maybe it was just such a fit of rage that it didn't, like, click in immediately. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know if the target was really one or both of the parents and he was just in such a rage or maybe had some other mental health issues going on where he just got carried away and then after the fact realized what was really going on or what, Mm -hmm. but... Or even for the fact when we talked about Lena, we won't go too far into depth with this. Go listen to part one. It might not have even been the parents that were actually the target. It might have been her. That's definitely true as well. It could have definitely been um, Lena specifically who was the target. And just to make sure there's no witnesses, he carried it out through the entire household. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, and it just kind of keeps getting worse. Uh, They caught a different EVP that really creeped me out, which was this deep-throated laughter when they they were holding the axe that was the suspected murder weapon and asking, is this the murder weapon? And they just recorded the spirit just laughing at them. And uh, actually, that brings up a good point I forgot to mention earlier. Apparently, uh... The historian was saying that the axe in the museum is suspected to be the murder weapon. However, people debate it because it's not the axe that appeared in the trial. And apparently that's because the sheriff forgot to grab the actual murder weapon when he traveled to the courthouse. So instead of going back for or admitting that he fucked up, he went to this hardware store and bought a new axe. <laughs> I didn't know that. Thank you for that. I thought you'd enjoy that tidbit. I just knew that it was Josiah's axe. Like, it it had been taken from the property. Like, I knew it was their axe, but I'm like, oh my god, that's great. <laughs> I can just imagine this panicking sheriff, like, on his way to the courtroom, opens his trunk, like, there's no axe there, and slams it shut. He's like, how much time do I got? <laughs> Do I have time to run all the way back and get it? Or do I need to just go down to Harbor Freight and grab something else? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, yeah, when I read that, I was laughing really hard. But then I was like, man, this thing got really botched. No wonder they couldn't confirm who yeah. was the murderer. Ugh. 
But yeah, here's some more things that might hint towards who it could potentially be. Uh, so these were actually pretty much in a row, these last few EVPs I'm going to mention. They, uh, Zach specifically was telling the spirit to stop hurting people, and they picked up a deep voice saying, we're going to keep them in the dark. Then they asked why the murderer killed the family, and the next EVP said, because they don't step in heaven yet. Ugh, yeah. And then the well, I mean, <laughs> no, Going back to the fact that all the mirrors were draped over with cloth, but the windows weren't open. They were all shut. That odd stillness that was going on, it, it was dark in there when officers originally got in there. I don't know if I mentioned that in the previous episode, but everything was closed up to the point where it was pitch black. Oh, gosh. Oh, my gosh. That's actually kind of horrifying, because now that I think mm -hmm. about it, wasn't the belief that you have the window open so the spirit can leave through the window, and that's why the mirrors close. So mm -hmm. they close the mirrors so that they won't get trapped in the mirrors, but they also close the windows so they also can't leave to pass on the to the afterlife house. if that is their belief. So basically they're mm -hmm. trying to trap them in... Um, I don't know if that particular religion believes in limbo, but I know certain pe certain cultures and religions and spiritual beliefs believe in some sort of limbo where it's not quite the afterlife, but you're not living either. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's what the murderer was actually trying to do. That's absolutely yeah. horrifying. That's horrifying. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> Just no. No, thank you. No, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Uh. And then the final EVP they got in this line uh, was he yelled at them, or yelled at the spirits, that he was a sinner. And so the EVP picked up a spirit saying, you're going to give up blood. The and I believe I this uh, Yeah. <laughs> I believe this is right when Zach was sitting next to the axe and previously had been asking the spirit to, like, tip the axe over <laughs> So yeah, I'm I'm not liking what I'm hearing. It's very aggressive, very dark. Yeah. Only Zach would ask for the fucking ghost to hurt him. I know, right? I was like, are you serious? He's like, uh, go watch the show, listeners. But no, that one scene, he's all laid on the floor with the axe all propped up next to him. And it's just like, push it over on my face. You want to kill somebody, kill me. And I'm like, yeah. Nobody else in hell would be doing that <laughs> shit. No, thank you. I, no. Uh, no, thank you. I'm not going to test fate and put the murder weapon right next to my head and be like, are you still angry spirits? You want another victim? No, 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 no. <laughs> We're not playing that game. <laughs> Absolutely not. We're not doing that. Not today, <sighs> Satan. <laughs> exactly. Oh. <laughs> uh. Well, that brings us to the end of Zach, so now I'll move on to some other investigators. Cool, cool. <laughs> this is the one I forgot to look up the date on, so my apologies, but the Rock Island Shadow Chasers went on an overnight stay. Uh, they set up infrared night vision cameras, and they did black out the windows with trash bags and tape, which I found particularly interesting since that is often a 
common source of interference where you might pick up some sort of weird glare or light reflecting off of something that could make weird shadows as if you have cars driving by or anything of that nature. So the fact that they blacked out the windows to try to get rid of that interference I found very interesting since I'd never really heard of a team doing that before, so that was pretty cool. Um, mm-hmm. But as far as their actual experiences in the household, two team members, including one of the, uh, including the team lead, went up to the attic and did an EVP session up there. This article did not describe exactly what they experienced, apart from that they came back very shaken and just pale-looking, trembling, obviously experienced something very terrifying up there. Molly, who was the sensitive in the group, specifically said she... Well, she actually refused to go up to the attic. She was supposed to go up to the attic and just straight up said no and wouldn't go up there. Uh, And then she felt very uneasy in the pantry. Uh, They ended up doing a session in the kitchen directly across from the pantry where their EMF meter was lighting up really strong, uh, indicating there was likely a spirit in the room with them. And now the team lead had been facing the pantry and suddenly got a really uncomfortable look and asked Molly the sensitive to trade places with him. And as soon as she trades places with him, she sees a huge dark mass, which she describes as being darker than the darkness of the room, in the shape of a man seeping out of the right wall, emitting a negative energy. At this point, it rushes at her and tries to enter her body. So she immediately... (laughs) can't blame her, grabbed her things and went outside to smudge herself again. Apparently she had already smudged herself and her teammates multiple times uh, before entering the house and between some of the experiences. Uh, but that <laughs> that really spooked her, as it would have me as well. Um, but the team lead even confirmed that he had seen the exact same thing and that's apparently why he had traded spaces with her was to see if she also witnessed it or if it was just him. Now, Molly, the sensitive, specifically stated that she did believe that this uh, shadow sort of spirit was not human and was likely attracted to the household by the tragedy that occurred in the building. However, in her experience in the household, she did feel that the Moors and the Stillingers, Stillingers had moved on. So she at least felt better about that. However, this is what gets me, the fact that she believes that the whole- all the victims have moved on, but she ends up going back inside to complete the investigation and returns where they're sitting next to the pantry, and this time she faces away from the pantry, and she feels her hair move when something sighs and breathes into her ear. Then she sees a little girl's skirt with no feet leave the pantry, I'm assuming from her periphery, and approach her- and it starts tugging on her pant leg, and at that point she just gets up and leaves. <laughs> yeah. Little girl's like, you thought I moved on. You were wrong. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that was Grandma's my thoughts. Get you. Uh, either little girl's fucking with her, or there's something that's not a little girl, it's posing as a little girl. I don't really like that option either. No, 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 no. No, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> <Your face. laughs> 
No, 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 no. Oh, that was a pretty strong reaction. <laughs> <laughs> I forget that things can do that at times. I'm like, no. Yeah, I don't like. I don't like things that do that. No, thank you. Uh, now she did the sensitive. She slept for a whole four days after she got home, and the team lead fell into a deep depression for the following six months, which they do believe was a result of that investigation. So they definitely felt like they had a very negative experience there. Moving on to paranormal research and investigative studies, PRISM. They compiled their best EVPs from 2004 to 2014. They covered a whole bunch of them, so I just picked out a few that really jumped out at me rather than going through the whole list. Uh, but probably the one that got me the most out of their EVPs was a young male voice that was pretty clear from 2005 that says, He's gonna hurt us, Paul. <sighs> That just broke my heart. Oh. oh. That's so sad. I know. That's what I was like. I just stopped right in my tracks. It was just like, this whole case has been rough, but that right there, that hurts. That hits hard. Ouch. Yeah. That hits really hard. There was a more friendly sounding children's voice that also jumped out at me from 2006 where there's a young child that couldn't really distinguish the uh, sex, which says, who are you? Which that actually kind of made me smile that a kid might be asking the investigators who they are and why they're in their house. <laughs> why are you in my house? Who exactly. Are you? Did you bring cookies? <laughs> yeah. Seemed a little bit more innocent to me, so that made me smile. Uh, but the hardest EVP to listen to out of everything I listened to for this case um, was one they included in their little video, but it's actually from the Orbs Paranormal Research Team, and it was detected in 2009 in the household. The entire team was outside when this recording uh, caught this EVP, and the house was completely empty, and... They recorded the voices of multiple children, both girls and boys, screaming, which was mm. very disturbing to listen to. Ugh. I don't know how to feel about that, because they, they pushed really hard in articles that most of the children were asleep at the time of the murder, so it's like, it makes me question if maybe that was off. Yeah, I don't know. Every article I read... Uh, and because the parents were taken out first, there was really nobody to help. Yeah, and from what I read, it sounded like they believed all the children were asleep and they were not awake for any of what happened except for uh, the one Stillinger girl who had the defensive wounds. Everybody else, it sounded like they thought that they were not awake for it. Mm -hmm. And I really hope that's true. I hope so that's true. I don't know if the screams were more of a like uh at this what the spirits are doing actively now now that they the child if the children have realized like what has happened if that's what they're recording is not so much mm -hmm. um a residual it's an after effect of like yeah. oh my god is that me exactly so not a residual of what happened in the moment but more of an intelligent thing of reacting and understanding what has happened so, yes, that was probably the most disturbing thing I listened to out of everything. 
Oh, yeah. And then uh, the final EVP before I moved on to the next little bit is uh, from Chuck Young with the Smoky Mountain Paranormal Team. It was recorded on March 12, 2012 in the children's room closet, and it sounded like a child crying, followed by... I think they described it as a child, but it sounded more to me like maybe an older child, like a teen or even an adult female. So I'm guessing maybe one of the older Stillinger girls. Um, and it, it said, help, can you? And then it trails off. <sighs> so those are the EVPs. Uh, for now, I'll cover a few more later, but I wanted a little break from the EVPs here. Uh, so in 2013, there was an investigation by a duo uh, paranormal team, uh, father and daughter, Alan Tolf, a retired police officer, and his daughter, Anna Tolf. And I, just up front, I pulled this specific case from the episode, The Axeman Cometh, by Haunted Case Files in 2016. Now, they got some interesting evidence. They have a photo of a back window that shows the curtain is pulled back and there's a girl standing in the window that looks like Ina Stillinger. Excuse me, Ina Stillinger. They also have another photo, which was taken outside of the building, which shows... uh, It actually is interesting. They were taking multiple photos, so it actually shows the apparition forming and then the full apparition. And they caught a photo of an apparition of a man with a brimmed hat, which they believed looked like Reverend Kelly. He keeps showing up here. He does a little. Sir? (laughs) What you doing? Now, uh, this duo, both of them found the house to be overwhelming with sadness, anger, and frustration. All these negative feelings and energy. And they, I believe they started in the children's room with the spirit box and actually spent 20 minutes there, which they both described to be very disturbing because almost the entire time they were listening to a deep, raspy voice cursing at them and telling them to get out. And I read some of the uh, curses. It was uh, pretty vulgar. <laughs> oh. Uh, they later in a different room saw a little brown haired boy in a plaid shirt run by, which at first they thought may have been one of the little boy's spirits, but immediately afterwards they got a painful electric shock and they were so afraid it was going to hurt them that they had to go outside. So then they started wondering if that really was one of the little boy's spirits or if that was something else. Um, After taking a break, they went back upstairs uh, to the attic. Um, The father hung rosary beads in the attic to try to protect themselves. And the entire time they were up there, the beads were swinging back and forth. And they made it sound like they were up there for quite a while. So there's no way that it was just the energy from him setting them there. They proceeded to the uh, Moore's bedroom upstairs where Mrs. Moore and Mr. Moore would have slept. And this was another really disturbing EVP that I heard. It was a female moaning mother of God. And they were wondering if that could have been Mrs. Moore's final words. If indeed she somehow managed to wake up in that, that final moment. Or if this, like I said before, or it's possible that perhaps it's an intelligent haunting and this is her reaction to realizing what has happened. Mm-hmm. And then finally, for their investigation, they laid down in the bed of Mr. and Mrs. Moore and 
that that was uh it sounds like a very terrifying experience they heard creaking in the attic then muffled speaking and sounds coming from the stillinger bedroom the train went by at which point anna started feeling physically ill and they both became very fearful because of the association between the murders and the train potentially however the haunting subsided at that point and it sounds like they packed up and left for the night after that point another eventful investigation <laughs> then our last team here to discuss is Rachel Jones and her paranormal investigating team from 2014 uh, did not specify who but said that one of the individuals was grabbed by a spirit while inside the household they captured multiple photos which actually were pretty impressive uh, one was of a face on a full-spectrum video camera. Another was labeled as three different children in the photo. But to me, it looked almost as if it could have been one or two children and then just blurred together. Uh, but definitely at least one or two children in the photo. Uh, very... I can't say crisp, because like I said, it was blurred. But you could definitely make out what appeared to be uh, a couple young children standing in front of the stairs. And then a photo of a young boy in the window, which they said was likely Boyd or Paul Moore. They did catch 16 EVPs, and it was within a short period of time. I didn't write down how long it was. I want to say it was only like six minutes. I remember it was a very short video. Uh, the quality and clarity of the EVPs were to varying degrees. Some I could hear, and then some I could not really make out. Uh, since I tried to just listen to it without looking at their cheat sheet of what EVPs were where to just see if I could pick them out myself. And some of them I honestly couldn't find just listening to it. Uh, but there were some good EVPs in there that were a bit more pronounced. There are multiple variations of EVPs saying some sort of mom or dad or mommy or something like that. There was, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh... Yeah, that, that really got me, too. There was what they described to be a growling EVP. However, I interpreted it more... It sounded to me more like the grunt a person makes when you're exerting yourself, which made me really think of the sound that if somebody's swinging an axe and really like putting a lot of effort into it, what kind of sound mm -hmm. they would probably make. That's what it sounded like to me, personally. Um, and then the two other EVPs I picked out that really jumped out at me... There's this really creepy one, this low masculine voice that sounds similar to some of the other EVPs that other investigators have detected, where he just said, uh-huh, and it just creeped me out Ooh. so bad. I was just like, ugh, don't like that, no. <laughs> Sarah, you can take your uh-huhs and leave now. Exactly. Thank you very much. <laughs> Please take your uh-hahs somewhere else. And then the final EVP I wanted to mention, this one came through pretty crisp, so I, I thought it was important to mention, was tell the killer that, and then it trails off and you can't make out the rest of what they say. But yeah, they okay. got uh, some interesting EVPs for sure. Uh, so, And that was one really interesting thing, as being able to listen to so many different EVPs from different groups is you really can hear similarities between a lot of the voices. And I mean, I suppose generally speaking, uh, that could be said if you took a random sampling of people's voices in the same age group age, or age range that 
and same gender that they may have some similar voices in the bunch. So that's not to necessarily say these were the same individual spirits that these different groups were detecting, but I think it's promising that they were getting similar EVPs both in the way they sound, the way the voices sounded, and then also in the messaging that there was similar messaging in some of the EVPs, uh, which was something one of the investigator groups even pointed out that this is really good evidence if they're getting similar EVPs from different groups using different recorders and completely different technology, they're still getting a similar result. That maybe there really is something going on here. Oh. So, <laughs> that's, that's a lot to take in. <laughs> it's, it is a lot. It's definitely a lot. And uh, something I wanted to really quick at the end throw out there, because one of the articles I read brought it up, and I hadn't even thought of this, was over the 90 years between when the murders occurred and when the Lynns purchased the house... There was plenty of people, like I said, coming in and out, as well as renters, not just people owning the house. It's very possible that rituals could have been done in the house during that time period. It, okay, especially, and we probably will get into this later in time, especially with more on your side of the cases, with the early ages in the United States, like the 1800s to the early 1920s era, like that Houdini time, um... A lot of people started using seances as a way to communicate with the other side. And then you have the development of the Ouija board. So with that time frame in mind and the gruesome murder that occurred in this building, you have to consider that there's going to be somebody similar to how we discussed in the last episode with taking pieces of skulls and such as mementos that are going to want to come into that building and talk to the dead. So it's, it's something that was very, I won't say common, but it was practiced more in that time. It's still practiced today. Like seances occur regularly, but it was more of a fad in that day and age. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to describe it. Um, yeah, that actually reminds me of another case that's kind of on the back burner for me right now, where that was <laughs> part of it, is they, they were discussing how that was more, like you said, a fad back then, that it was almost a social kind of thing. I'm mm -hmm. thinking more late 1800s, maybe early 1900s as well, but the case I'm thinking of was late 1800s, where it was... Like, invite your friends over, and we'll have some drinks, and then let's go do a seance. <laughs> like and it let's was, fuck with some ghosts. Exactly. <laughs> like, it was not considered more of a spiritual thing or a belief kind of thing. It was very much treated as a, like, almost like a party game kind of thing is how I, mm -hmm. I interpreted it from what I read on it. And, I mean, that's a little weird to think about nowadays. Well, I guess it's not that weird, considering you can buy a Ouija board in plenty of stores. And it basically looks like a board game, even though it's not. Oh. Yep. It's from the same developers of Monopoly. So, yeah, you can get it. Yeah. No, no. I guess you didn't know that. I didn't know that. I don't like you it. You do now. <laughs> but, yeah, so that was something that did not pop in my head at all until I read that in that article of... You have the tragedy here of what happened. You have... Um, a lot of people coming to visit this place. 
uh, seeking out the paranormal in more modern times, knowing that this tragedy occurred here. And I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but there is some theories that if you have enough people going to one place seeking out something that you can basically conjure something up just by wishing something was there. Some people mm-hmm. believe that. Um, but yeah, to also add in that factor of, oh, and you may have had somebody do a ritual at some point in all those years of this house's history. It's just like a whole nother thing of uh, can of worms that could have been opened up and could explain why you may have some of this more darker side of things going on inside the household. And I mean, and that's really the question I kind of wanted to end on is, uh, what do you think, listeners? And, and what do you think, Katie? <laughs> what is actually haunting the house now? Is it the victims? Is it the murderer? Or is it something else entirely? Or maybe a combination of those things. But yes, I mean, depending on who you talk to or, or somebody's experiences, I think you'll get different answers as to what it is exactly that is haunting the house. Uh, but that's definitely something to think about is, is it the murderer or is it something else that was summoned there that has nothing to do with the original tragedy that occurred there? Yep. And as far as like that goes, I think it's a mixture of both because obviously people are going to poke around where they shouldn't be poking fucking around with. Okay. (laughs) That's just, it's, it's known. All right. But when it comes to like, using tools like Ouija boards, seances, and pendulums, you got to question how many of those people have actually gone through these ritual proceedings enough to kind of know what the fuck they're doing. Like, have you fucked around Mm -hmm. with it enough to know what you're doing, or are you going to fuck around and find out? Um, (laughs) Find out the hard way. (laughs) Find out the hard way, which is like 90% of witchcraft. It's a whole can of worms. But... (laughs) When you're using these proceedings and you're going through, are you being respectful? Are you Zach Bagelbites that's saying, yeah, you want to kill somebody? Drop the axe on my head. Or are you the neutral person that's sitting there like, I really don't want to be here, but all my friends came. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, it's a mixture of different things and going into that environment when you do start doing like spiritual work and not to get on my side of the soapbox too much with Wiccanism and Pagan. I'm not Wiccan, but I'll include them in this. (laughs) (laughs) When you're doing spiritual work, it's very understanding that you need to have respect on both sides of the table. The entity needs to respect you and you need to respect it because without that, there's no respect whatsoever and you don't know what you're getting from it. Not to mention, if you're playing those games and you're trying to communicate with the other side, are you closing your portals afterwards? If you're casting circles to hold that energy in place, are you cutting doors to leave your circle or are you just walking out of it and breaking the circle entirely? There's a lot to put into perspective for that. And when it comes even to like cleansing an area, Specifically, what tools are you using to cleanse? What type of sage? Are you using green sage or white sage? White sage is going to amplify spiritual activity, whereas green sage typically is used as a cleanser. It depends on what all you're using because it can just grow in a snowball effect if you do it wrong. For sure, yeah. And I think (laughs) that's a really good point is that a lot of the time... Things go wrong when people are just kind of fucking around with things that they don't really know what they're doing, and they 
they think it's a good old time and we're just gonna have some fun and do whatever and they don't take it seriously and that's how I think things go really wrong sometimes. Yeah. So. <laughs> and not to mention the individual that left and was depressed for months on end. It makes me question if something attached because that's a very likelihood too in these types of places especially where so much darkness has happened and it's just it's a question if something went home with him yeah i forgot to mention it one of the first investigators i had mentioned that had specifically said they believe there's a dark energy inside the household one of them specifically did say they thought something had followed them home at some point because mm -hmm they did become very depressed and very irritable and had a, a very large personality change, which they have no personal history of depression or anything like that before. And there wasn't anything going on in their life at that time to cause those kinds of feelings. And so they did believe something followed them home. Um, so, and I mean, the sensitive Molly in that particular case you were referencing, uh, she even was saying in the article as I was reading through it, because she was the one telling the story in this article, she was the author, um, she even voiced that she was concerned about the crew lead uh, multiple times throughout the investigation, that already she could tell he was acting mm -hmm. like he was getting bogged down, and he just wasn't acting like himself, and so I think that's one of the big reasons why she was trying to pull the team out and try to smudge and cleanse and do what she can to protect them. Uh, but obviously something still managed to get through. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if that was the case and something did attach and follow him home. Absolutely. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad entity that does that. It doesn't have to necessarily be what we would consider to be an entity at all. When it comes to depression and sadness, there are other things out there that manifest over time. So if you're coming into this environment and it's already a very sad place between like the ghosts that haunt it and the people that are coming to experience it and they're getting sad in this area it could be something as simple as it's a manifestation of energy that has glommed onto you kind of like chewy sticky gum and it's just sad and that's the only way that you can describe it and it's depression and it's just this overwhelming feeling and that will follow you around for a while and a lot of people describe that as like happening in their homes per se with they experienced a great amount of sadness somewhere i could even go as far as to state like when i was going through moving out of glendale i had been through a horrible relationship i went through that breakup and i had cried so much in that apartment that any time that i re-entered that apartment i felt horrible and it was just absolute depression. And it felt like something was constantly weighing on me, almost like that elephant's foot method where it's like you cannot breathe mm -hmm. because you are so sad, but you do not understand why. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot going on with this case. It's very complicated from the history of what's happened at the location as well as what is currently happening at the location following that tragic history mm -hmm. <sighs> it's been <laughs> quite the the heavy one to well i shouldn't say it's the heaviest of all we've done but it, it has been a heavy one to it's, research it's been yeah. a heavier one it's i'm been, like i don't think it's the heaviest it's but yeah. it's 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 taken top three probably <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> Considering when I came into this, I'm like, oh yeah, just axe murders. That's fine. I'm like, and then I started researching. I'm like, ooh, there's more than that. There's more than that. Like I started with yeah. like one trigger warning and then I'm like, I'm gonna need my fucking catch all. Hold on. Yep. Yeah, and I mean, I told Katie that I specifically, when I was doing my research, was trying to avoid the suspects and just look at just enough background so I could understand the paranormal, so to research the paranormal. But I definitely came across the mention of the older Dillinger girl of what could have potentially happened to her. Ugh, yeah. It was just like, ooh, yeah, this is a whole situation of not just mass murder, but potentially some other things going on here. Which mm -hmm. also makes me wonder, not to get too far down the rabbit hole here, but if we're specifically talking about Reverend Kelly, if he had a history of these criminal behaviors, what all was going on uh, leading up to that? And regardless if he was the murderer or not, I mean, he was not arrested since he wasn't decided by the jury to be the murderer. What continued after that point to happen if he it was known that he was engaging in some of these behaviors? And that's just really disturbing to think about. But Yeah. Well, it's like we see with a lot of serial killers in... I would say, like, the 1912s, like, 1920s. I would probably point more towards, like, 1950s, 1960s, that they got a slap on the wrist, they got re-released, there was no DNA taken, so there's nothing in CODIS because it wasn't a thing yet to do. And they went out and they re-offended and they re-offended and they got to a point that if they were getting arrested for their offenses of, like, sexual assault, it would turn into then they'd go to prison for a little bit, get re-released, slap on the wrist, no documentation of like when they were arrested. And rather than leave a witness alive this time, they start killing them after the sexual assault. Mm. So it makes me question if there was anything else, like you said, going on with the preacher Kelly, if he already had this innate behavior and he had gotten in trouble with it in the past, if he was released after this, a possible homicide, a octuplet homicide at that, was released and just let Jerome free, who's to say that he didn't do it again? That is if he committed the murders, per se. Exactly, yeah. And that's what I was thinking. Even if he wasn't the murderer, we at least have records that he was engaging in inappropriate sexual behavior. Mm -hmm. So even if he wasn't off murdering people, it seems like he was definitely off doing something something bad. So it's and it's just I feel like that's also one of those circumstances which I don't want to get too far into the weeds here because that's more your side of things. But <laughs> <laughs> like the close community where you have all that trust and especially if you're targeting young people that are taught to look up to certain individuals like a, a preacher, you have that additional layer of trust. And so I feel like it just leads to the perfect situation for grooming and unfortunately what comes after that. And so that's why mm -hmm. I definitely found that particularly disturbing is like I said, regardless of whether or not he was the murderer, I definitely feel like there was some bad shit going on and it probably continued to go on after that if he was not punished for it and like you said maybe it even got worse after the fact if he realized if he was the murderer or even if he wasn't but he was considered a suspect maybe he just started thinking like crap I don't want to get 
caught for the things I'm doing. What do I need to do to not leave a trail? And that's just mm-hmm. really scary to think about. So, yeah, because that's where you get into a lot of like missing children's cases mm-hmm. and those types of things. Yep. But I think it's super sus that he's he's chilling at the home. Yep, yep. If that is yep. him and it's not somebody posing as him, mm-hmm. but that that's super sus to me. Why are you there? <laughs> nobody else is there why are you there yep the only record i found pointing at anyone besides him was that one spirit box name andy and the thing is too is it's like you know any one spirit could have thrown that name out so it could even be him Mm -hmm. throwing that name off to lead him off the trail if it is an intelligent haunting Mm -hmm. but everything else there is multiple lines of paranormal evidence that they believed that uh reverend kelly was there and so like you said either something's posing as the reverend or the reverend's there and exactly if the reverend was not the murderer then why would he be hanging out there <laughs> so it's just why are you uh, there <laughs> Fish, what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that's super like super sus <laughs> I call an emergency meeting. We need to vote <laughs> Reverend Kelly out of the house, please. Yep, exactly. Oh, yeah. No. Nope. Nope. Well, I guess we should probably wrap it up before we continue rabbit holing even more. <laughs> but no, I'm glad we got some good discussion going of all the possibilities here and, and all the things. Me too. But. I feel like it was. it's a very good close to everything. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed our first official uh I don't know what to call it. I don't well, really it call is it our first official like episode. super big case and it's our yeah. first combined episode too. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Combined episode. I was trying to think of a good way to, to put it. It's our <laughs> cuz we've done like the torture episodes before, but yeah, this is our first case really where we picked a case that had both a lot of true crime and a lot of paranormal going on and could really dig deep into it. So yeah. Yep. Hope y- y'all enjoyed it and liked what we did with it. Be sure to let us know. We always love to hear from you and yeah, we'll Absolutely. have to do some more of these in the future. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully not too soon because this was a lot to take in. Oh yeah. And it, I do true crime all the time, but Reed Re doesn't do a lot of true crime. <laughs> no, I was, oh, yeah, I was like, Damn, I know like a lot of my cases before had a little bit of true crime sprinkled in there, but not this much. This is a lot. <laughs> like, this is a lot of true crime. This is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you again for listening to Haunting Cases Podcast. Please make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Haunting Cases Podcast and on Twitter at Haunting Cases. If you have a listener tale, story request, or any questions, email us at hauntingcasespodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. So, what do you say, listeners? Are Are you haunted haunted too? too?